Welcome to episode 163, A Wounded Healer Heals, Dr. Yalom on Life, Loss, and Therapy, featuring Dr. Irv Yalom, MD. For information about the free CE credit associated with this podcast episode, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth E. Riaz, and my goodness, today is an unbelievable honor for me. I am joined by none other than Dr. Irvin Yalom. He barely needs any introduction at all, but you may know Dr. Yalom. I know I do. My initial introduction was through the infamous group psychotherapy book and then a lot of other books that he's He's written over the years, including Love Executioners, When Nietzsche Wept, Lying on the Couch, just to name a few. And Dr. Yalom, thank you for joining us. Why don't you take a minute to further introduce yourself, and then we will jump into today's topic. Well, I'm um, Irv Yalom. I'm a psychiatrist. My career has uh, primarily been spent at Stanford University, where I've uh, been in the Department of Psychiatry forever. I'm uh, emeritus right now, uh, live in Palo Alto, um, have uh, four children, my wife died, and um, uh, I've recently written a book, my wife and I wrote a book together, half of the book we wrote together, and then I wrote the second half after after she died. So that's what's been in my mind, um, mostly. Yeah. So for our listeners who are not yet familiar with the book, let me tell you about it. It's called A Matter of Death and Life. And in it, Dr. Yalom and his wife, Marilyn, talk about her experience and, and also his experience of her approaching death and how they manage that both as individuals, as family members, as, um, as both passionate in their careers and as a married couple. Um, Dr. Yalom, where should we start in talking about this book? I mean, it is so beautiful, so profound. Well, um, hmm. let me tell you about the beginning of the book. Uh, the beginning of the book was my wife had a, a cancer of the blood called multiple myeloma, which is um, sometimes treatable, and sometimes people live for 15 years with, with treatment. My wife got that disease uh, about eight or nine months before before she died. Uh, she had many different treatments. None of them were successful. Um, and um, one day when we were taking a walk, there's a, a park right about a block from our home, and we were taking a walk down the path. And, and my wife says, you know, I have decided that I think that we should write a book together uh, about what's happening to me. And um, and she went on to tell me what thoughts she had about it. And I said, well, that's, that's all very interesting. And I do think you really should write that book. Um, and she, because I'm starting, I'm writing another book myself, a book of stories about psychotherapy. She says, oh, no, no, you're not going to write that book. You're going to write this book with me. She was all of about 98 pounds and about five foot tall, but she was very strong. And she had a, a way of being quite, quite, quite pushy about that. So I started to write that book with her. And that's, and that's how we wrote this book. Uh, she and I wrote alternating chapters uh, for the first half of the book until she, she died of her illness. And the second half of the book 
is my life without her uh, in the first several months. It's called a matter of, of death and life. What we mean by that, it's her death and my life afterwards. One thing that I might mention is that our, our life ended with, with this book together. Our life together also began with the book. Uh, let me just tell you a story about that. I, I believe it's somewhere, maybe it's in this book, I'm not sure where. Uh, I've written a lot of books, but when we were, uh, I was about 14, I met her, and I was in the ninth grade of junior high. I had moved from another part of Washington, a not so nice part of town, to a much nicer part of town where, where I'm, um, I, I started junior high in my in my ninth grade, and I went out bowling with uh, somebody in my classroom. Uh, we used to bowl at a nearby bowling alley, and I used she's always used to like to gamble on the on the bowling, and that was always fun for me. Afterwards, uh, he said, "You know, there's a party at Marilyn Koenig's house. Why, why don't we drop in there?" I didn't know who she was. Of course, I didn't know anyone in this part of town, nor had I ever been to a party before. Um, so uh, we went over there, and we got to her house, and we could just see a big mob of, of kids all trying to get in the front door. The front steps were all blocked and everything, but just a large mass there. So my friend said, listen, why don't we, why don't we go in through the window? So he, uh, we went over to the side of the house, he opened the window and we crawled in and I saw her there at the other, other side of the room greeting people at the door, uh, people all around her and I didn't know what to do. So I, I found my, wound my way over to her uh, and I said, hi, I'm Aravielum, I just climbed in through your window. Uh, that was my introduction to her and as you said, I didn't have a lot of uh, uh, grace about that. <laughs> But she, I did get her phone number, and I called her a day later, and we agreed to meet in Washington, D.C. There was a place called The Hot Shop, which had nice uh, ice cream sundaes, and we, we had an ice cream hot fudge cake. And um, during the course of eating that, she told me that she had skipped school that day. I said, you what? You skipped school that day? And she said, well, she had started to read Gone with the Wind. And it was so long, it's a long book. She had stayed up all night reading it, and she was too tired to go to school. She had to sleep during the day. I was blown away, first of all, by her skipping school, but secondly, by her doing this through reading a book, because I had spent my first 14 years of my life mostly uh, reading books, always. I, I went to the library every day. I lived in a very bad neighborhood. Uh, it was pretty dangerous outside, so I just read continuously. And she was the first person I ever met who seemed to care as much about books as I do. So that's what I mean. The, our, our marriage, our relationship started with books and it ended with books. And for our listeners who can't see Dr. Yalom right now, he basically has a background of, of books, of his beautiful bookcases. And I know in the book, Marilyn talks quite intimately about her own affection for books. And that sounds like one of the things that always connected you to. I'm, I'm in my office right here. My office is about 150 feet from my home. I can just see it out out the window. So this is this is where I see patients, and this is where I spend most of my time writing. This book is something that has never been done before. 
And granted, you were really the first one to write a book on group psychotherapy, but that's a separate conversation. A book like this that's so intimate that talks not only about your love and your grief, but also that experience for you as a clinician, having worked with so many people who are also grieving. You acquiesced when Marilyn put a little bit of pressure on you about writing this book. For you, did you find the process of writing to be therapeutic? Uh, yes, especially the second half of the book when I was writing. I was in deep grief and writing it. It helped me, helped me a great deal. Um, and I, the first few chapters were, were fine. Marilyn and I were, were writers together. Um, I, ha I had written some books, and at one point we... Uh, she's she's a scholar. She got a PhD in in French and German literature and comparative literature at Johns Hopkins, uh, and was always first in her class. She was first in her high school and junior high school class. I went to her valedictorian comments. She was a very bright lady. Um, anyway, so that that's that's really how that book how that book started. Uh, one time, I got a, um, an award from. Uh, uh, Rockefeller Foundation, and they uh, they invited me to spend two months at Bellagio, which is a writer's uh, studio in, in Italy, in southern Italy. So uh, we went there, and they give you a family apartment, but then for the person who wins the award, they get a special office where they can write during the day. So that's what I had. I was writing during the day. But Marilyn was telling me about uh, who had not written before, but she was telling me that she had, she was thinking about uh, a project she was doing where she was reading about women's firsthand observations of the French Revolution. And as she talked about it more and more, I said, you know, I, I think there's really a book in there. Well, why don't you, why don't you think about that? And so he went to the head of the Bellagio and see if we get an office from there and said, no, 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 we don't give spouses offices. But just then the head of the organization came by. He said, wait a minute, there is an open office for you. It's it's in the woods. There's the big forest around, around Bellagio. So we walked in the woods about 10 minutes and there was an oak tree or a huge tree. I'm not sure if it was oak, uh, but with a ladder and you climbed up on the ladder and there's a big tree house there. And she loved uh, loved that treehouse, and she started to write that book, and that was her first book. And after that, uh, I think she—I would say she matched me book for book. We were always uh, together. She wrote a large number of books as I did. For you to write together the way that you did, for many therapists, I think, especially for newer therapists, there can be this internal and sometimes external pressure to really remove ourselves from the room, to show up, to be the notorious blank slate. And this book is essentially the antithesis of that. This is you saying, here is really the most painful experience of my life and being very open and public about that. How did that affect your grieving process? Does it feel violating for somebody like me to know these things about you, even though you don't know me? No, no, it doesn't. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I tend to be uh, very open, and I find that's very helpful in, in, in therapy uh, with patients. After Marilyn died and I was 
in grief and just lying in bed. And my eye fell upon my bookcase, and there were copies of each of the books I had written. So I, I started looking through those books, and there was one book that I, I picked up first, and it was called had a funny name, Mama and the Meaning of Life. That's because one of the stories had to do with with a dream I had about my mother. But as I looked through the table of contents of that, there were about, I think, eight or nine stories in there. One of them was uh, one that shocked me. I'd forgotten all about that I'd written. This. It was called, uh, I think, Eight Advanced Lessons in the Therapy of Grief. And so I started to to read that story. It was great into that. I'd forgotten that I'd even written that. But I, I did work for quite some time with people who are in grief. And, and for years, I, I led a group of people whose spouses had died, both both men and women were in, were in the group. Uh, so I'd sort of forgotten about that. That was a long time ago, 25 years ago, perhaps. And I started reading that story. And it was a story of me treating a professor at Stanford who had lost her husband, and before that, a couple of years before that, she had lost her brother. And she was a very angry lady, angry at the universe, angry at the, at the hand that, that life had dealt her. And, um, and, and she would say to me, you know, you don't know how I feel. Uh, you can't help me, you know. You sit there in that nice pink striped shirt, nothing ever bad ever happens to you. Uh, and... So I started thinking about that as I read that story. You know, I, I began thinking as I'm going through my own grief, I, I understood her much better now. And I began to think that maybe she was right. Uh, maybe I could do a much better job on her than I did then. I did treat her for about a year and a half or so, and eventually she got better, but it was very, very hard work. Uh, and I then began to think of all these patients who had been, who had lost a spouse, and I had treated in a, in a therapy group for, for a great many years. Who then I also ran a therapy group of women who had metastatic cancer. Um, and uh, a very uh, extraordinary woman came to me and she had that disease. She had metastatic breast cancer. And she asked whether or not I would lead a, a therapy group of other women. She would be, she would be able to, to organize women. And I, I thought about it for a while and I agreed to do that. So I led that group for uh, many years, eight, nine, ten years, uh, perhaps, because as the women all... Every single one of the women died of that disease, and then new members of the group came in. And when I was in that group, I began to develop a lot of anxiety about death. As I saw so many people die, it was really hard. I was leading the group alone, and it, it's hard work. And I began thinking about it. I think it's time for me to get back into therapy. I was so anxious then. And I saw that Rollo May, a well-known psychologist who I had much admired and I'd read almost all of his books, but he had just moved to my area, so I started seeing him in therapy. But we worked together for about a year, and then I felt better, and we stopped. Much later, though, I became very close friends with him. I was, In fact, I was with him when he died. But he told me that although he had helped my death anxiety a good bit, his had gotten a lot worse uh, and uh, because he was 22 years older than I did. 
So that was a little interesting experience for me. I'm, I'm rambling here a bit. <laughs> no, I think you brought up a lot of really valuable points in that. And goodness knows. So as we record this, here we are in a pandemic and this concept of parallel process that I think for therapists can be really uncomfortable to access that pain, that grief, that anxiety, that hopelessness, whatever it is. And you're really open in the book about that. You talk about, you know, these explicit moments leading up to Marilyn's death and afterwards about these experience and going, oh my gosh, you know, I'm 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 now on the other side and can feel this really deeply. If you had to go back with that one patient who made the comment about the the pink striped shirt, what would be different? in your work? Do you feel like you would say something different? Would you self-disclose if you had the opportunity to treat her now? I would certainly self-disclose. I would tell her that what I had gone through and how long it took me to get over that. And um, although my personal situation with grief is a little different from most patients because, you know, I had known this woman all my life since I was 14 years old. And I knew uh, that when she died, my prognosis was not going to be good. Uh, I just never had never met or treated anyone who had been in this kind of intense relationship from 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 the ninth grade on and uh, uh, I was we were we were inseparable uh, I uh, after after we graduated high school she went away to college and that was the first separation we had had she went to Wellesley um, and I started medical school and after the first year of medical school, I transferred. It's very unusual to transfer from medical school. Uh, but I, I found there was Boston University Medical School had an open place there. So I applied to get to Boston, which is quite near Wellesley. And, uh, and, and so we... So I had the separation of a couple of years when I was in undergraduate school while, while she was at Wellesley, but then I moved up there. And then we were, we were never apart after that. In your book, you talk about the phenomenon of death anxiety and your own realization and reflection over the years of your of your experience as a clinician that essentially the more of a sense of an unlived life you have, the higher your experience of death anxiety. And and I have more questions about this and, and also Marilyn's chapters as she's thinking about these concepts herself. Can you talk for our listeners about death anxiety, about how it showed up in your research, and really what we clinicians need to keep in mind about this phenomenon and this this consistent existential threat? Well, I'm yes, I'm I've been thinking about that a whole lot. I'm I'm not doing therapy anymore. I'm too old. My memory is uh, uh, is slipping away. And I don't think I feel comfortable doing ongoing long-term therapy with people. But I decided that uh, I do have a lot to offer still. So I decided to offer single session consultations. And so for the past, ever since Marilyn died, I've been seeing, I've been seeing one person a day. Uh, and that's ended up being a lot of people. I mean, you know, we're talking about hundreds at this mm -hmm. time. So I'm doing these single consultations. I'm seeing a lot of people who are coming with death anxiety. And so I've gotten to, to do a lot of thinking about it. 
and and what, what the formula that, that I've I've felt before, but I feel so much more strongly now, is that the 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 greater the death anxiety, the more regrets one has about the way one has lived one's life. Uh, and if you if you live uh, a life uh, um, more or less free of regrets, I, I do. As I think about my own life, and and, and uh, I, I think about my relationship with 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 my wife, and I think about what I've done in the field, it's it's incredibly more than I could ever expected myself. Uh, uh, one of the things I did when I was in the worst time of grief was I started rereading my for the first time. I started rereading my own books, and that was quite a, a wonderful therapeutic experience. Experience for me, I felt pleased with what I had done. I felt I had written honestly and, and well. Uh, so, and I, I right now I, I have almost zero uh, anxiety about death. I, I feel I've I've lived my life uh, fully and well, and uh, was was. Uh, lucky enough to have spent my life with this with this uh, wonderful woman. I've been in a, in a great profession, so I, I have no regrets. I have very little death anxiety now. Um, sometimes when I think about death, um, I, I think about uh, this thought comes to my mind that when I die, I'll be I'll be joining Marilyn. Uh, and that, that somehow gives me a lot of comfort and relief, even though with my with my operating mind and my brain, I know that that's absurd. Uh, that uh, you know that Marilyn isn't alive; she doesn't exist any longer. She she's she's dead. Uh, but still, this irrational part of my mind gets gets comfort from thinking I'll be joining her. It tells me something about the the importance and the power that religion offers to so many people. The idea that there'd be some kind of continuity after death, although to my scientific mind, it it, it doesn't seem possible. Now sitting with people who are coping with death anxiety, now at a time probably higher than many generations and in a very different way. Um, we've had so many losses, just the United States alone, so many people that are going to be approaching Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa, anything else, all of these important days in their lives, birthdays. You talk in your book and you've talked a lot over the years and in, in other books and in research about that anniversary phenomenon. When you're working with clients now, do you provide psychoeducation for them about that? For someone who's who has lost somebody recently, do you say to them, "This is this is what you can expect," and and this is what it was like for me? Sure, I've worked with a, a, a lot, seen a lot of people in consultation who are in grief, and I will talk to them about my grief. I'll talk to them about. Uh, getting some help with it. Uh, I've been seeing a therapist uh, after Marilyn died for the last few months now. It's been very helpful, and I think it's 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 good to have a therapist. It's good to be in therapist and talk about this and have someone that you can you can share everything with. So yes, I I will advise people to to get get some help with this, and I think um, 
experienced therapists need to learn how to work with grief. I hope my book might be helpful to many of them. Mm -hmm. I think the transparency is refreshing and, and the vulnerability that both of you bring to it. Marilyn herself talks about feeling at peace as she was reflecting back on her life, looking at her children, at her grandchildren, her contributions to the field, to society, that she felt okay with that. And you talk on your end about struggling with her okayness, if you will. For both you and for Marilyn, you've had the opportunity to have these these long lives. And that was something Marilyn talked about quite a bit. I'm curious for you, conceptualizing working with somebody who's either facing the mortality of someone around them who's much younger, or they are facing their own mortality and are younger. How does that change it? Because both of you reflect on that phenomenon of like, I've had, you know, I've had a good run, basically. How do you think it shifts that for people that have not had as good of a run? I get them into therapy. I have them talk about what happened between them and the person they lost. Um, I, I look at that very, very deeply. Uh, sometimes they uh, forget all the good parts of what their relationship was like. I will go over their lives. I'll wonder about what they can do in the remaining life if they have that will not cause them to have regrets later on. Um, so I will, I will do all these things, or at least now that I'm, I'm just doing one sessions with people, I'll get them into therapy with, with some good person around the world. A little easier now with, with, with um, on lot with a Zoom therapy. Uh, see someone who's not necessarily right, right next door to them. You've been through that first year now, and here we are talking sometimes almost academically about this book that is not the practice of group psychotherapy. What is that like for you to talk about Marilyn constantly, you know, as now that it's, it's out of the world and your experience and the depth of what you felt and to share it so openly, what's it like for you even now to talk about it with me? It's not as painful as it, as it once was. Um, I've, um, as I say, I don't think I'm ever going to be uh, over this entirely. Um, I've, I get hurt when I look at a picture of Marilyn. I don't have pictures of her. I have to admit this. I'm a little embarrassed, but I don't have pictures of her in my office or, or many in the house because every time I look at the picture, I feel a stab uh, wound. So it's it's that's hard for me, uh, and I have to uh, admit with some embarrassment that I have not visited her grave uh, for for the same reason. I'm slowly doing this work. Um, I, I'm fortunate enough to have four children, and so in, in some ways there's pieces of Marilyn in all of the children, and we talk about that a good bit. Uh, three of the children live uh, within an hour drive of my house, so every week uh, one or two will come over for one or two days. Uh, so I've, I've got, I'm, I'm getting you know, good good care uh, for my children. The other ones, a few, is a several-hour drive. He'll be up here uh, for a week for my birthday coming up next week. I'll, I'll be 90 in another week or so, which is really old. 
I don't know anyone older than I am right now, except for uh, my Nietzsche and Kierkegaard teacher at Stanford, who's 93, and we, we still meet and take walks very often together. When you meet with clients now in this very short-term work, I imagine that's shifted your approach significantly. Well, it's a somewhat different, but not entirely different, though. Um, uh, I try to to give everything I can in this in this single session to do do as as much as I can for that person. And often it means getting them persuaded to get some help if they need it. Um, I'm in an unusual position with with seeing clients for a single session because uh, almost anyone who comes to see me has read things that I've written. That's why they contacted me. So I am imbued with a great deal of power, uh, and so I I've tried to use that power by helping them look at themselves, look at the look at what they accomplished in life, look at the good parts of themselves, talk about areas that need to be worked on. Um, so I, I, I always, and I always spend some time in the here and now uh, in, in the session. Without fail, I do that. That's always a good part of the session, sometimes as much as, you know, a third or half of the session, whereas I will say, let's take a look at how you and I are doing in this session today. What's that been like for you? Uh, what are the questions you've been thinking about asking? Uh, what's it like? Are you upset? How did you feel when I talked about my childhood? Uh, when I talked about uh, losing my wife, what did you feel then? So I spend a lot of time looking at the hair now, and some people absolutely can't do that. Uh, and and I, I know for a fact already these people have a great deal of difficulty with intimacy, and I want to focus and try to help them work on that and talk to them about what they need to work on in therapy. It's, it's different from for everyone, but, but the sessions usually always contain my, my looking at the here and now, looking at the interpersonal work going on between the two of us. Back in 2016, when I went to the Evolutions of Psychotherapy conference, one of my takeaways that really struck me a message I consistently heard was the importance of authenticity, the importance of showing up, discussion about self-disclosure. And that's a big change from where we were 20, 30, 40 years ago in this idea that, that therapy was this very transactional thing that used to happen. And it's still transactional in a, in a different way. Um, but the intimacy you talk in the most recent book and in other books about the importance of the therapist to show up as a real person in the room. That idea, can you talk more about that? Because I think that's so powerful. And to hear from someone like you who's had so much influence in the field, like, hey, this this is how I show up and this is what it means to show up in the room and to really nurture intimacy with somebody. What does that look like for you? This has been gradual for me. It's not natural for me. Uh, I don't have, growing up, I certainly didn't have much social skills, uh, nor did I have a lot of friends in those first 14 years of life. But um, when, when, I, when I started the field 
to get into psychiatry, um, uh, I did have a background that many people entering the field didn't, which is I was a voracious reader, uh, which means that I have virtually, there's hardly any times in my life at all, except when I'm studying for a final exam or something, that I haven't ended the day with reading a novel. Uh, so I'm deeply, deeply versed in, in, in literature in that way. And when I started uh, my training in psychiatry, uh, there was a, a, a great deal of interest in psychoanalysis, of course, but there's also a great deal of interest in interpersonal work. Um, in, in my day, one of the best-known uh, therapists was a man named Harry Stack Sullivan, whose probably name is not very well known to many of you, but because he's a, 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 a terrible writer, his books are almost illegible, uh, but he introduced the whole importance of looking at relationships that people have had throughout their life, not just early memories of their parents, uh, looking at, at fantasy life, but but who are their chums? Who are their friends? What's going on in their life? And when I when I started my training, I was very interested in reading Sullivan and also another uh, therapist named Karen Horney, who was a German therapist, who was talking about the same thing, but in more, uh, 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 more uh, easily apprehended kind of uh, words and, and methods. I started, one of the first things I did when I started my residency was spend some time watching a therapy group with, a, with one of my really important mentors named Jerome Frank who had very interested in group therapy. And the residents were asked to watch this group probably for, I don't know, maybe six, eight weeks, watch it meet once a week through this two-way mirror. But I continued watching it the whole year. I was just fascinated with it because the way that group was led and the way group therapy effective group therapy is led is that we begin to look at how people relate to one another in the group. There's not an interest in past history and older history. How do you relate to the people in the group? And how do you relate to the therapist? How does the therapist relate to you? So I became fascinated with this idea of interpersonal work, which is best seen and known in, in therapy groups. So I began doing group therapy then. I, after after a few months, uh, Jerry Frank invited me to come in and do the group with him. He was a, a real mentor of mine in, in group therapy. And I've been, been interested in, in group therapy as well as individual therapy uh, ever since. This interpersonal relational work between client and therapist, I mean, you're doing it even now when you're seeing somebody for one session. What do you feel like is foundational? What have you learned over the years and how to really nurture connection? Well, uh, I, I think one thing that's always important for me, say, in these single sessions is, uh, is personal self-disclosure. Uh, I have, you know, I will talk about people will know that I've lost my wife and they'll talk about that. I'll talk about my grief and what's going on there. So I'm very open about myself. I know that that makes some therapists feel very uncomfortable. Um, but um, uh, I, I find invariably it, it helps therapy. It helps helps me really proceed much more effectively with this with this client that I'm seeing even for a single session. 
And then what's more, I'll follow it up. I'll say, how did you feel about what I just said about my childhood? When you're considering self-disclosure, I've thought myself about, uh, I pull from the movie, kind of hovering above oneself and observing the interaction and asking yourself, you know, what's the value and what I'm about to self-disclose. For you, what do you see as the primary value in self-disclosure and how it nurtures connection and intimacy with a, with a client? Invariably, it, it helps people uh, disclose themselves. I always move my self-disclosure into uh, interpersonal work about how did you feel about my telling you there about my childhood? What was that like for you? And I always get an answer. I mean, like 100% that the people appreciate my sharing that with them, makes them feel closer to me, makes them trust me more. It always has that effect. Uh, and that's, that's almost without exception. In your line of work, over the years, you've worked with so many different clinicians, with so many different clients. What are, I'm curious, through your eyes, what are some of the potential cons of self-disclosure? I haven't encountered any of these. I mean, I'm using my common sense. I'll talk about my disclosure. I'll talk about the fact that I've been in therapy several times. Uh, I've said that to many clients, especially clients who need therapy, especially clients, for example, who've had uh, uh, a very difficult first three or four years of life where there was a lot of a lot of early trauma in their life and and tell them about how important uh, a role that will play in your later life. Uh, tell them a little bit about about Bowlby and Harlow's work with, with primates and uh, how uh, people growing up with a, a, a lot of trauma in their first few years of life that are going to need therapy. And I, I do this to persuade people, don't stint yourself. You know, get some when you need it. I've been in therapy about five different times. Uh, I'm very open about saying that. I think just that for some clinicians is kind of revolutionary, just that idea. And Mm -hmm. I think everybody is (laughs) curious, like, oh my goodness, who does Yalom go see for a therapist? (laughs) Who does one of the grandfathers of psychotherapy see for therapy? Um, But this idea of doing our own work as well is pretty fundamental. But because there's such a stigma in our field about mental health, I think even therapists find ourselves affected by that stigma and trying to act, maybe feeling this pressure to not be part of that, to not have our own struggles. And what I've heard so much in the field in the last 10 or 15 years is the importance of showing up with authenticity and being real people. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. Uh, it's, it's, it's the way I work, it's, the way I, it's what I teach my students, it's what I, and it's what I write about. You mentioned a little bit ago this idea of, and, and I'm loosely quoting, but being over Marilyn's death, that you're not quite over it. What does over mean to you through your work, having done so much in the field, in grief, in your own reflection and experience of grief, what does over it look like for you? Well, let's see. That's that's a difficult question. Um, 
Uh, I, I'm not sure I'll ever be over uh, her. I, I, I think of her a, a good bit. Uh, and, and of course, it doesn't help that I'm living in the same house and the same rooms that she was, and things that reminders of her all around. And I have four children and lots of grandchildren who all knew her. So I, I, I doubt if I'll ever be over her life. Maybe if I were a good bit younger, I, I'm very old, uh, but if I were a good deal younger, I might perhaps want to find another partner, and maybe that would uh, that would help me re-enter life in another way. At my age, though, that certainly is not anything that's going to happen or I'm going to want to happen. Um, so um, the, the, the grief, uh, uh, my grief just persists. But I'm functioning quite well. You know, I see have a lot of friends, go out, do things. So I'm functioning well. But in my in my mind, I ache when I when I think of for those of us who have had an intimate relationship with grief, I think everybody has their own definition of what it means to be over it. And I think, and I, I preface this by saying, of course, this couldn't apply to everybody, but that over it means carrying it with you and to pull from what you just said, to still be functional, but be able to, to carry and know that it hurts and that it's probably always going to hurt? Well, I think I'm functional in that, you know, I'm, I have a lot of friends, I see people, uh, I, I do various things. So I'm, I'm, I'm certainly functional. I think I'm doing these constantly. I'm also writing. Uh, the, the writing is terribly important for me. It's, in fact, I always think of it as a lifesaver. Uh, to write that book with Marilyn and another book I'm working on right now. And um, I spend a good bit of time of my day writing. I've always done that. So that's a, that's a special little lifesaver that, that I have. Uh, for me, and if I, if I were to finish this book, I, in fact, I'm not going to finish this book because I don't want it to, I don't want it to end. I don't know. Well, what will I do if I'm not writing? That, that would be hard. So everyone has their own kind of issues about that. But, but for me, writing is a, is a tremendous help. Uh, I, I love to spend. I'll, I'll come to my desk to write, and I'll. I'll I'll wake up uh, four hours later having got out of my chair. For you, writing helps give you identity and passion and meaning. Do you see that as pivotal to grief recovery for the folks that you've worked with? Oh no, no. It's it's it's. I've just I've spent my life as a writer. People have spent their lives in other ways, perhaps in more more social ways too. But that not necessarily of writing, but that idea of connecting to one's hobbies and passions, and that kind of redirection to rediscover who somebody is in the midst of grief. Yeah, well, it depends on how you get your meaning in life, and for me, it's been for me, it's always been through through writing and and through through my friends. I have a, a large group of friends who come over and and visit me, and my children. So I I don't like to spend too many too many days alone without anyone here. So I, I always take walks almost every day with one friend or another. That, that, that's very helpful for me. In your work, 
what have been the most impactful tools, coping strategies? Like what are the things that clinicians need to keep in mind in supporting somebody who's grieving? You so you talked about hobbies, you just talked about social connection. Well, uh, one one thing that's important is of course to have had some experience with it yourself. Uh, and always I link to that uh, what are you going to feel about your own life uh, if it were to come to an end soon? Would you feel that you've really lived and done what you wanted to do in life? And what are the regrets you have? And can we take a look at those regrets? And is there some way you can operate or live uh, with fewer regrets? What would you like to do? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I, I just don't have many regrets about the way I've lived. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to think of any. Uh, so that, that, that gives me a lot of comfort. Why do you think that is? I'm curious, in your values, what do you think permitted you to have fewer regrets retrospectively? Like, what is it about personality, about opportunity, about risk tolerance? How do you see that? Like, what's a formula? I guess, what's a formula to not having regrets? <laughs> well, you know, it's not, it's not difficult if I were to start to ask you about, uh, about your life and about what what regrets do you have and what were your hopes for your life and what what are the things you about yourself that you've never fully lived or fully expressed in your life i'm perfectly willing to kind of get into that kind of conversation with people what sort of dreams did you have about your life is are the ways in which you've disappointed yourself um so that's that's generally the tact i would take in this idea of being in the here and now and being present for the space between therapist and client, you've seen the field over many iterations and the heavy focus that has happened, especially in the last 15 years on evidence-based practices that we need to be doing some acronym in order to be therapeutic. I'm curious, how do you feel about the pressure, I think, particularly for people who work with insurance companies or in agency-based environments, that we have to have a certain acronym that we're using in order to be of benefit? How do you feel about that? I try to form a close relationship with that person. I am self-revelatory. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep getting feedback. You know, how are we doing this session today? Uh, when were we closest? When were we furthest apart? What's, what's going on between us today? I'll, I'll look at that very thoroughly. So I spend a lot of time looking at the here and now uh, in, my, in my practice and, and also in my writing and certainly in the consultations. I don't do cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm, I'm very different from that. I'm really trying to use myself and look at how people relate and how they relate to me. So I'm taking a very interpersonal stance to working with the clients. In prior episodes, I've had the honor and opportunity to interview Dr. Scott Miller and Dr. Daryl Chow, and I'm myself a trainer in feedback informed treatment and everything you're saying is along the same lines of that concept of the space between therapist and client that consistent check-in mm -hmm. do you 
So when we look at the work of Barry Duncan and Scott Miller, they've pretty well manualized that concept. But for you, it's just an integrated part of the work. Is that one of the things that you would really like to see in the field to have more focus on what's happening between us in the here and now instead of do X, Y, Z and it's going to improve your insomnia or do X, Y, Z and let's do some thought stopping or whatever it is, but to reshift and, and focus on that um, space between. Well, maybe there's a place and a certain clients for that kind of work. But for all the clients I see, I'm, I'm using the first one that you mentioned, where I, uh, I really uh, demonstrate how one can look at oneself and how one can uh, relate to one another. So uh, maybe that's in, in part a function of I've spent so much of my uh, career uh, in, in group therapy where, where you, you know, I, I teach people how to relate to others and how they begin to explore their relationships with other members of the group. So I've, uh, that group therapy textbook's a very long textbook. It's, uh, I think it's in its... I think it's its sixth edition now, and and it's about last edition is about eight hundred pages long. So I spent a lot of my life writing that, writing that, <laughs> and checking all the group therapy uh, literature about that. I have the last two issues, the last two editions. I've had a colleague uh, named Mullen Lesh. He's the president of the Group Therapy Association here. So I've had him as a as a a helper in in that book, um, but you know I, uh, I I've enjoyed my uh, my group therapy work very much, and well well and there's a lot of therapists that I I see. In fact, uh, of these consultations that I that I'm doing, I, I'd say over half, uh, maybe sixty sixty maybe seventy percent are therapists who 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 I talk with from, from all around the world. And many of them, uh, as I listen to them and see their awkwardness with other people and, and see how difficult it is for them to relate, I, I will urge them to get into a therapy group uh, because there, there, there are more therapy groups now uh, for therapists mm -hmm. that are farming, especially in, in the United States. Uh, so there, there's, and I give them a couple of names of people who, who can refer them to a, a good therapy group for therapists. Um, I've been in a therapy group for therapists for some 35 years. A, a, a couple of uh, my colleagues and I started a group. I'm not the leader. I'm just one of the members. It's a leaderless group. Everybody is in there is a, is a therapist. And uh, it's been going on at Stanford for all, all these decades. And I found it extremely useful and, uh, and helpful to people. So um, I'm, if, if it's possible in your community to form a group of therapists, I'd, I'd recommend you doing that. I think it's going to be helpful to every therapist. I think there's a lot of value in what you just said, because when you're talking about checking in with a client and saying, what was that like for you? Where were we further apart? Where were we closer? That requires a lot of awareness and a lot of ego strength. And I can hear the value of sitting in a room with other therapists and having the time and space to observe self as other, if you will, 
to work within that space. How did you nurture that? You know, you talk about how when you look at, at your earlier years, feeling like you were socially awkward, and then working through that. How did you do that to become that self-reflective and aware of yourself in the room? Well, I, I, I've been in that therapy group for so long. That's been quite helpful. Um, and I, I've had a, a lot of therapy through my training. And there was a group of our residents where we did this. So uh, I, I think uh, right at the beginning of the field, that you want, if one gets the right therapy and one gets the right teachers, as I had with, with, uh, with Jerry Frank, uh, I, I think it's a good part of one's training. Um, so I'd, I'd urge you, your students, to be to be in a group. With the time that we have left today, I'm curious, what are the general gems of wisdom that you have for not only new therapists, but for therapists in general? What's your advice for therapists as they exist in the world in a time like this? Join a group. Uh, be open with people. Um Get yourself into therapy yourself as a as a therapist. Get into therapy maybe more than more than once in your lifetime. Um, as I say, I've, I've I've been in many different types of therapy. My first therapy was uh, when I started my residency, and uh, I, I was in traditional psychoanalytic therapy four times a week for for three years. That was that was my initial treatment and it's it's the kind of approach to therapy I don't care for I didn't feel it was I didn't feel it it uh, it was helpful uh, and worth all that time that I spent because the therapist was unavailable in fact she was even out of sight I couldn't see her because she was at the edge of the couch and my head back to see her and never spoke Itself. and for me that was a, a, a good lesson in how not to do therapy uh, so I, I operate very differently from that. Um, I I think there's a lot of value in what you just shared, and thank you for that disclosure about your own therapy. My last question for you today, if it's all right, what do you look for in a therapist? Oh dear, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to answer that with anything new. Uh, <laughs> I think a therapist is going to be. So interpersonal connection, intimacy, vulnerability. Been in therapy several times during his lifetime. Uh, is is willing to be open in his conversations with you. Um, so those are the things that I look for. Dr. Yalm, to have spent this time with you for me has been an extraordinary honor, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Tell us again a little bit more about not only your most recent book, but some of your other books, your websites, how people can learn more about you and your work. And I, I can't really believe that anybody's listening to this and doesn't know who you are, but still, how can they find you online? Well, I'm, um, I, I've written a lot of books. I've written, uh, I think, four novels and several books of, of, of stories, all of them about psychotherapy. I've not wandered too far away from that. And I, I, uh, I wrote a book about Schopenhauer, but it was really a book about how to do group therapy uh, using Schopenhauer. It was the most likely, unlikely person in all of history to have been in a therapy group. Uh, so uh, that, that was a way I had of, of teaching something about group therapy. Um, and um, so I've got books of stories, I've got novels, and I've got some 
more more textbook kinds of things uh, uh, that, that that students can read. You know, as we talk about this, we've talked about connection and interpersonal relationship. One of the other things that I've always read and seen in your books, and I see it now, is your use of humor, and that that's fundamental to being who you are and how you've impacted the field, and I think why your voice is so effective in the work that you do. Um, Dr. Yalom, thank you deeply for your time today. I sincerely appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me to be on your program. In order for us to be able to provide this continuing education learning opportunity with Dr. Yalom, we want to further discuss some of the themes Dr. Yalom mentions during this discussion. In the episode, Dr. Yalom talks about the idea of autoethnography, which focuses on the intersections of personal experiences and the culture in which those experiences take place. This harkens back to a study in 2012 by Ulrich and Luttengorf about the impact of journaling about stressful emotional life events. They found that writers focusing on the conditions and emotions developed greater awareness of the positive benefits of the stressful event than the other two groups, and this effect was apparently mediated by greater cognitive processing during the actual process of writing. In the interview, Dr. Yalom discusses his own self-disclosure and therapy session and his reflections about self-disclosure over the course of his entire career. According to Edwards and Murdoch in 1994, a study of 184 psychologists revealed that 94% use therapist self-disclosure as a therapeutic technique and to model behavior. In Staring at the Sun, Dr. Yalom shares, I share the fear of death with every human being. It is our dark shadow from which we are never severed. In 2001, Barrett and Berman found that therapist self-disclosures resulted in greater reduction in client symptom distress, as reported by clients themselves. This idea of therapists being authentic about their grief can be clinically impactful. For individuals interested in learning more on this topic, there's an article called To Share or Not to Share, Current Research and Thoughts about Therapist Self-Disclosure on the Society for Advancement and Psychotherapy's website, authored by Kristen Pinto Coelho, PhD. In Dr. Yalom's recent book called A Matter of Death and Life, he notes, These are human being to human being, not so much therapist-client moments, and these moments have made a huge difference to me and to my clients. It is very heartening to know that even when we get it wrong, i.e. being human, we can make it right with authenticity and kindness. This idea is an extension of the research by Dr. Barry Duncan and Dr. Scott Miller about the clinical value not only of therapeutic authenticity, but also of the importance of therapeutic repair when there have been moments of misattunement. How we clinicians lean in to the conversation with the client and take a more person-centered stance instead of ignoring or glossing over our uncomfortable experiences in therapy. In the interview, Dr. Yalom discusses the impact of death anxiety on how one processes their own mortality. A study called Death Anxiety, Depression, and Coping in Family Caregivers at Walden University in 2016 found significant relationships between death anxiety, depression, coping, and duration of caregiver experience of grief. For clinicians who are interested in further learning on this topic, we recommend the book called 
Death Attitudes and the Older Adult, Theories, Concepts, and Applications, published in the year 2000, particularly Chapter 9 by Tamir and Eliason, titled Beliefs About Self, Life, and Death, Testing Aspects of Death Anxiety and Death Attitudes. In the interview, Dr. Yalom also discusses the anniversary phenomenon, an effect that can cause an increase in grief symptoms and annual markers of the loss. For listeners interested in learning more about this anniversary effect, we recommend the study Anticipatory Anniversary Effect in Bereavement, Development of an Integrated Explanatory Model from 2010 from the University of Hong Kong. As we wrap up this interview, I want to leave you with this, a quote from Dr. Yalom's Lying on the Couch. Only the wounded healer can truly heal. Thank you for listening in. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.